Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on the Creature Called Man Chapter 5 Man and Mythologies Part 3 The substance of all such paganism may be summarized thus. It is an attempt to reach the divine reality through the imagination alone. In its own field, reason does not restrain it at all. It is vital to the view of all history that reason is something separate from religion, even in the most rational of these civilizations. It is only as an afterthought, when such cults are decadent or on the defensive, that a few Neoplatonists or a few Brahmins are found trying to rationalize them, and even then only by trying to allegorize them. But in reality, the rivers of mythology and philosophy run parallel and do not mingle till they meet in the sea of Christendom. Simple secularists still talk as if the Church had introduced a sort of schism between reason and religion. The truth is that the Church was actually the first thing that ever tried to combine reason and religion. There had never been any such union of the priests and the philosophers. Mythology, then, sought God through the imagination, or sought truth by means of beauty, in the sense in which beauty includes much of the most grotesque ugliness. But the imagination has its own laws, and therefore its own triumphs, which neither logicians nor men of science can understand. It remained true to that imaginative instinct through a thousand extravagances, through every crude cosmic pantomime of a pig eating the moon or the world being cut out of a cow, through all the dizzy convolutions and mystic malformations of Asiatic art, through all the stark and staring rigidity of Egyptian and Assyrian portraiture, through every kind of cracked mirror of mad art that seemed to deform the world and displace the sky. It remained true to something about which there can be no argument, something that makes it possible for some artist or some school, to stand suddenly still before that particular deformity and say, My dream has come true. Therefore do we all in fact feel that pagan or primitive myths are infinitely suggestive, so long as we are wise enough not to inquire what they suggest. Therefore we all feel what is meant by Prometheus stealing fire from heaven. Until some prig of a pessimist or progressive person, explains what it means. Therefore, we all know the meaning of Jack and the Beanstalk, until we are told. In this sense, it is true, that it is the ignorant who accept myths, but only because it is the ignorant who appreciate poems. Imagination has its own laws and triumphs, and a tremendous power began to clothe its images, whether images in the mind or in the mud whether in the bamboo of the South Sea Islands or the marble of the mountains of Hellas. But there was always a trouble in the triumph, which in these pages I have tried to analyze in vain. But perhaps I might, in conclusion, state it thus. The crux and crisis is that man found it natural to worship, even natural to worship unnatural things. The posture of the idol might be stiff and strange but the gesture of the worshipper was generous and beautiful. He not only felt freer when he bent, he actually felt taller 
when he bowed. Henceforth, anything that took away the gesture of worship would stunt and even maim him forever. Henceforth, being merely secular would be a servitude and an inhibition. If man cannot pray, he is gagged. If he cannot kneel, he is in irons. We therefore feel throughout the whole of paganism a curious double feeling of trust and distrust. When the man makes the gesture of salutation and of sacrifice, when he pours out the libation or lifts up the sword, he knows he is doing a worthy and a virile thing. He knows he is doing one of the things for which a man was made. His imaginative experiment is therefore justified. But precisely because it began with imagination, there is to end something of mockery in it, and especially in the object of it. This mockery, in the more intense moments of the intellect, becomes the almost intolerable irony of Greek tragedy. There seems a disproportion between the priest and the altar, or between the altar and the god. The priest seems more solemn, and almost more sacred, than the god. All the order of the temple is solid and sane and satisfactory to certain parts of our nature, except the very center of it, which seems strangely mutable and dubious, like a dancing flame. It is the first thought round which the whole has been built, and the first thought is still a fancy and almost a frivolity. In that strange place of meeting, the man seems more statuesque than the statue. He himself can stand forever in the noble and natural attitude of the statue of the praying boy. But whatever name be written on the pedestal, whether Zeus or Ammon or Apollo, the god whom he worships is Proteus. The praying boy may be said to express a need rather than to satisfy a need. It is by a normal and necessary action that his hands are lifted, but it is no less a parable that his hands are empty. About the nature of that need there will be more to say, but at this point it may be said that perhaps after all this true instinct, that prayer and sacrifice are a liberty and an enlargement, refers back to that vast and half-forgotten conception of universal fatherhood, which we have already seen everywhere fading from the morning sky. This is true, and yet it is not all the truth. There remains an indestructible instinct, in the poet as represented by the pagan, that he is not entirely wrong in localizing his god. It is something in the soul of poetry, if not of piety. And the greatest of poets, when he defined the poet, did not say that he gave us the universe, or the absolute, or the infinite, but, in his own larger language, a local habitation and a name. No poet is merely a pantheist. Those who are counted most pantheistic, like Shelley, start with some local and particular image, as the pagans did. After all, Shelley wrote of the Skylark because it was a Skylark. You could not issue an imperial or international translation of it for use in South Africa, in which it was changed to an ostrich. So the mythological imagination moves, as it were, in circles, hovering either to find a place or to return to it. In a word, mythology is a search. It is something that combines a recurrent desire with a recurrent doubt, 
mixing a most hungry sincerity in the idea of seeking for a place, with a most dark and deep and mysterious levity about all the places found. So far could the lonely imagination lead, and we must turn later to the lonely reason. Nowhere along this road did the two ever travel together. That is where all these things differed from religion, or the reality in which these different dimensions met in a sort of solid. They differed from the reality not in what they looked like, but in what they were. A picture may look like a landscape. It may look in every detail exactly like a landscape. The only detail in which it differs is that it is not a landscape. The difference is only that which divides a portrait of Queen Elizabeth from Queen Elizabeth. Only in this mythical and mystical world the portrait could exist before the person, and the portrait was therefore more vague and doubtful. But anybody who has felt and fed on the atmosphere of these myths will know what I mean when I say that in one sense they did not really profess to be realities. The pagans had dreams about realities, and they would have been the first to admit, in their own words, that some came through the gate of ivory and others through the gate of horn. The dreams do indeed tend to be very vivid dreams when they touch on those tender or tragic things which can really make a sleeper awaken with the sense that his heart has been broken in his sleep. They tend continually to hover over certain passionate themes of meeting and parting, of a life that ends in death, or a death that is the beginning of life. Demeter wanders over a stricken world looking for a stolen child. Isis stretches out her arms over the earth in vain to gather the limbs of Osiris. And there is lamentation upon the hills for Attis, and through the woods for Adonis. There mingles with all such mourning the mystical and profound sense that death can be a deliverer and an appeasement, that such death gives us a divine blood for a renovating river, and that all good is found in gathering the broken body of the god. We may truly call these foreshadowing, so long as we remember that foreshadowings are shadows. And the metaphor of a shadow happens to hit very exactly the truth that is very vital here. For a shadow is a shape, a thing which reproduces shape, but not texture. These things were something like the real thing. And to say that they were like is to say that they were different. Saying something is like a dog is another way of saying it is not a dog. And it is in this sense of identity that a myth is not a man. Nobody really thought of Isis as a human being. Nobody really thought of Demeter as a historical character. Nobody thought of Adonis as the founder of a church. There was no idea that any one of them had changed the world, but rather that their recurrent death and life bore the sad and beautiful burden of the changelessness of the world. Not one of them was a revolution save in the sense of the revolution of the sun and moon. Their whole meaning is missed if we do not see that they mean the shadows that we are and the shadows that we pursue. In certain sacrificial and communal aspects, they naturally suggest what sort of a god might satisfy them, but they do not profess to be satisfied. Anyone who says they do is a bad judge of poetry.
those who talk about pagan Christs have less sympathy with paganism than with Christianity. Those who call these cults religions and compare them with the certitude and challenge of the church have much less appreciation than we have of what made heathenism human, or of why classic literature is still something that hangs in the air like a song. It is no very human tenderness for the hungry to prove that hunger is the same as food. It is no very genial understanding of youth to argue that hope destroys the need for happiness. And it is utterly unreal to argue that these images in the mind, admired entirely in the abstract, were even in the same world with a living man and a living polity that were worshipped because they were concrete. We might as well say that a boy playing at robbers is the same as a man in his first day in the trenches, or that boy's first fancies about the not-impossible she are the same as the sacrament of marriage. They are fundamentally different exactly where they are superficially similar. We might almost say they are not the same even when they are the same. They are only different because one is real and the other is not. I do not mean merely that I myself believe that one is true and the other is not. I mean that one was never meant to be true in the same sense as the other. The sense in which it was meant to be true I have tried to suggest vaguely here, but it is undoubtedly very subtle and almost indescribable. It is so subtle that the students who profess to put it up as a rival to our religion miss the whole meaning and purport of their own study. We know better than the scholars, even those of us who are no scholars. What was in that hollow cry that went forth over the dead Adonis? And why the great mother had a daughter wedded to death? We have entered more deeply than they into the Eleusinian mysteries, and have passed a higher grade, where gate within gate unguarded the wisdom of Orpheus. We know the meaning of all the myths. We know the last secret revealed to the perfect initiate. And it is not the voice of a priest or a prophet saying, These things are. It is the voice of a dreamer and an idealist crying, Why cannot these things be? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.